The following is part of the teaching ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel in Barrie, Ontario. We believe firmly in proclaiming the Word of God without apology. For more information about our church, visit our website at harvestberry.ca or email us at info at harvestberry.ca. We trust that this message will challenge and transform you. Let's pray together for a moment. Father, we know that uh, all Scripture is God-breathed. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Father, it's all of those things so that uh, we here might be complete and equipped for every good work. And so as we turn our attention again uh, into your God-breathed Word, God, we would ask that you would complete us, uh, continue to complete us, and that you would equip us right now. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, three questions uh, to get us started here. Um, What do you have your heart set on? What's really important to you? What do you value? What's your heart set on? Uh, What would you estimate God's heart to be set on? Okay, what's your heart set on? What's God, what God, what is God's heart set on? And then third question, are those two things the same? Are those two things the same? Because they really ought to be. And uh, the passage we have in front of us today, Luke chapter 15, um, really helps us answer all three of those uh, questions, uh, especially with regard to God's heart for all of his children And uh, we should be aligned with that. We should have the heart of God for each other, for people. And uh, so that's what we're going to see in Luke 15. That's the introduction. And um, I want us to look right into the text today. And it's 32 verses long, but I felt it was so necessary for us to read it together. So we're going to take the time to read uh, the entirety of Luke 15. And then what I'd like to do is give you a chart that gives us an overview of it. We're going to see three parables or stories in this chapter. We're going to see in this chart how they're laid out and how they relate to one another. And um, then we're going to come to our principal question again. uh, Do we have the same heart that God has for all of his children? And so let's turn our attention to the scriptures. This is Luke 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. The Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I've found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she's found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I've found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there's joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. 
And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. No one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now, his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. That's an awesome chapter, isn't it? Uh, thank the Lord for his word. Uh, here's uh, the question then. Um, do you have the same heart that God has for all of his children? Now, to understand how these three uh, parables relate uh, together, let's look at this uh, chart that we've put together. Um, this is going to compare the three stories and you can see the various headings. Um, uh, there's the parable itself, three of them. The principal character in each one will look at what was secure in the story, what was lost in the story, the primary result of being found. And then, at least in the last parable, we have a secondary result that is uh, so important to us and actually is the thrust of what Jesus is saying in this parable. So the first parable, of course, in the first seven verses is the parable of the lost sheep. The principal character is the shepherd. Shepherd. Uh, that's pretty obvious. What was secure were the 99 sheep. We'll talk about that in a few moments. What was lost was the one sheep. It's all pretty obvious. And the primary result of that one sheep being found is that there was rejoicing with friends and neighbors. He threw a party. Very similarly now, the principal character in the lost coin parable 
uh, verses 8 through 10, the principal character is a woman. What was secure were the nine silver coins. She had those. Uh, What was lost was a single silver coin. And the primary result of that being found was, again, rejoicing with her friends and neighbors. Now, in the far more expanded parable of the lost son, the principal character is not the lost son, though we call it the parable of the prodigal son or of the lost son. The principal character, of course, is the father. Uh, What was secure was the older son. What was lost was the younger son. And the primary result of him being found was, dad saying, bring the fattened calf and kill it, let us eat and celebrate, and uh, music and dancing. The secondary result found only in this parable was that the older son was angry and refused to go into the party. Now each of the parables, of course, is told to us so that there's a lesson. All three of them point in the same direction. And what Jesus really wants us to hear is that the principal character is God, or more specifically Jesus, in all three of these parables. That what was secure, to borrow a phrase from the first parable, are the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. In, in this case, uh, in the first century, of course, he's talking to the religious leaders, but perhaps talking to Israel in general, the ones who had the word of God, who were the people of promise, uh, they were the ones who were, in a sense, secure by the fact that they were God's people. And uh, by application to us, he's really referring to the church. What was lost, to go back to chapter 14, this phrasing, we see it also at the beginning of, of chapter 15, Uh, But what was lost were the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame or the tax collectors and sinners of of verse 2 here Or, or, or the Gentiles who were outside of Israel. These are all the ones that Jesus is now saying are welcome, the tax collectors and sinners, the poor, the crippled, the lame, the poor, all of these, the Gentiles are welcomed in. And the primary result of them being found is joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. That's from the first parable. Or the angels themselves rejoicing from the second parable. That that which is lost was found. And the secondary result for us and what was pressing on Jesus at the time, and that's really the question, is what will be the response of those who are secure to those who are lost being found? How will the Pharisees and scribes respond? How will Israel respond? But for us, who are the followers of Jesus Christ, how will we respond to the reaching of those on the margins, those who are lost? That really is the question that's in front of us. And that's why we're asking this question about the heart of God. Do we have the same heart that God has for all of his children? And if you do, ready to go? That's, that's ready to go now? If you do, you'll rest secure in what he's done for you as a believer. That's the starting point, the necessary starting point. In one sense, these parables, as we've already indicated, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost or prodigal son, these are headings that you would find in your Bible that are not inspired, just added in later. They're really misnamed in the sense that they're focusing on what was lost when really the focus of each of the parables is on the one who's doing the searching. They're really about the principal characters, the shepherd, the woman, the father. So they're really, every one of these parables is really about God. The parables are all about 
Jesus. And if we're going to be effective in having his heart, in loving others, in reaching out, it's so important that very, the very first thing we do is ensure that our relationship with God is in the right place. We have to look at the vertical first and ensure that our relationship with God is well established and reconciled. We have to get the vertical right. We have to see how he, this is so important, that he's the initiator of this relationship. That he's the one who in fact moves toward us. That, that salvation really is all him. Salvation is all him. We have to recognize that God has done some awesome things for us. We'll try it again. We'll try it again. I'm committed to us getting this right. God has done some awesome things for us. God is doing some awesome things for us. God will do yet some awesome things for us. See, way better, way better. And here's the thing, we, we need to be secure in that. Has done, is doing, will do awesome things for us. He's the one doing it and we can rest secure in that truth alone. And in the case of these parables, the shepherd left Verse four, he left the 99 in the open country secure with hired hands. Some of you may have heard in the past in different interpretations that he was somehow negligent or he didn't care about the 99. That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. No shepherd in his right mind will abandon 99 to go after one. The entire flock represented his livelihood. Shepherds would not work alone There would be hired hands, other shepherds together, multiple flocks together. He didn't leave them alone. They were secure. When he went out to search for the one, the woman would have secured the other nine coins. I don't know how all this went down in the second parable, but somehow one coin came out. Was there a hole in the bottom of her money pouch? I don't know. People kept their wealth either on them or somewhere hidden in their home. They didn't put things on deposit like we would at a bank. So she had some kind of a money pouch. A coin fell out of it. There's no sense going and looking for the lost one and putting it back in the pouch if there's a hole in the bottom of it. Listen, I'm just imagining she would have sewed that up, made sure that was secure. She had the nine, tucked them away, and then lit a lamp and swept the house and found the one. The nine silver coins were secure before she searched. And the older son, throughout this entire episode with his younger brother leaving and coming back, the entire time he stayed with his dad, And his dad would say to him in verse 31, you see this, son, you're always with me and all that is mine is yours. He was secure in his father's home. God has done everything for you and me and we often overemphasize our part in the relationship. So we'll use phrasing like this. I've used phrasing like this and I, and I would say this even as I'm gonna say these phrases They're not wrong biblically. But we emphasize the part where we, quote unquote, come to Jesus. I I came to Jesus. I prayed a prayer of repentance. I got saved. I made a decision to follow Jesus. 
and just a little bit too much emphasis in all of those, especially when we stack them up on the I and the me. And I wonder if we wouldn't be better to say it this way. God brought me to himself. The Spirit convicted me and convinced me of my sin. God saved me. God moved me to follow Jesus. You see the difference? How the initiator is God, how he's the one making us secure. And I get that when I say these two different ways of saying it, that for the theologically savvy in the crowd, you understand that I'm opening up one of the biggest theological debates and discussions that exists. The difference between man's responsibility and salvation and God's sovereignty to make it happen. And um, I don't believe for a minute that either one of those ways of staying it is unbiblical and I don't think that you can look at the scriptures and completely reconcile it. I think the scriptures teach both that God moves towards us and in some fashion we move towards him. But if I'm going to default, if I'm going to err on one side or the other, I'm going to err on the side where God's doing this. Because I know the darkness of my own heart. I know how far I've been from him. And I know my own propensity to still drift. And I know he's the one who keeps me and makes me secure. And that's why we sing and worship him. And what's amazing about all of this is that when God does it, when God does it, it's done. And I don't need to worry that I've been saved in any fashion by my own effort or that my final salvation is dependent on anything I do. When Jesus, when Jesus was on the cross and he said those amazing words, it is finished, what he was really saying is he finished it. He finished it. Not that we in any way accomplished it or finished it. And when you have this, when you get it, you have absolutely everything you need. You don't need anything else. God secured it in the first place, and he's going to secure it forever. And so that's the older son. He was there. He was safe. He had everything the father owned. It was his. And so when you've got that, when you realize how secure you are in Christ, then your position, notice this next, your position to reach out to the not yet saved just as he does. You're now positioned to enter into the mission. And Jesus actually said of his purpose in coming to the world, this is in Luke 19. What chapter are we in today? We're in 15, 19. We'll get to there, I promise. Uh, we're gonna get there unless Jesus comes back. Um, I'm pretty sure he's not gonna come back till I'm done Luke. Jesus said of his purpose in coming to the world, this is Luke 19, 10, for the Son of Man came, I love this phrase, to seek and to save the lost. To seek and to save the lost. And, and, and then in his final days on this earth, you'll recall, he was crucified on the third day, was resurrected to new life. He appeared to many of the disciples. He taught them and instructed them. And then just prior to the ascension to the Father, he gave his mission, his purpose for coming. He gave that to his disciples. He gave that to us. So his purpose in coming to seek and save the lost, he now said to us, your purpose is to fulfill my purpose. 
Your mission now is to seek and to save the lost. And you see in these parables the effort that's actually put into that. The effort that we must put into seeking and saving the lost, into finding that which is lost. Jesus says of the shepherd, notice in verse 4, he asked this rhetorical question. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? The answer to the question is, well, no one would do that. No one would leave that one sheep out there. That represented 1%, doesn't seem like a lot, 1% of his entire livelihood. Those sheep represented his wealth. He wasn't about to lose that 1%. He would put in tremendous effort to go and find it, and, and we all would. Verse 8, or what woman having 10 silver coins, as she loses one coin, notice the effort she puts in to reaching, finding the coin. She lights a lamp, she sweeps the house, she seeks diligently until she finds it. A concerted effort put into finding And in the third parable, while the father does not actively go out to seek his son, in fact, that would be counterproductive. The son, obviously you can see a difference in the parable. This is about a human being. It becomes far more real, far more emotive, far closer to our own experiences. We're not talking about an inanimate object like a coin or a mere animal like a sheep. This is now a son. The father can't just go chase him down. He had made a determination according to his own will to leave the home and reject his father's way. The father couldn't chase after him. It would be counterproductive. And in fact, when you read the rest of the parable, you just know the son needed to hit rock bottom before he was gonna get it. So dad couldn't chase him. As hard as this is, and some parents in the room may need to hear this, Sometimes you need to let your kids go to make the errors they need to make before they're going to get it. You can't force anyone to believe. We can't coerce anyone into the kingdom of God, not even our sons and daughters. But if we think that he wasn't reaching out, that he wasn't actively involved in pursuing his son, then we've made a mistake. He, he's obviously watching and waiting. Verse 20, the latter part, while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Now, do you think this is, I don't know how, how much you think coincidence occurs in the Bible or whether you think God's providentially at work But do you think it's a coincidence? Dad just happened to be on the porch that morning, happened to look down the road, happened to see that his son was coming down the road. Do you think dad spent a lot of time on that porch looking down that road? And if you think that isn't work, then you haven't been a parent. The first time you send your kid off to kindergarten without you, the first time they take the keys to the car alone, the first time they go on a date, when they go to college, when they get married, It may seem like you're just passively sitting there watching those things happen, but every parent in this room knows how hard that work is. And how painful all of that can be. 
in the watching and the waiting, in the praying, in the never losing hope for his son, the father was laboring to reach his boy. Well, well then, of course, we see that while his son was a long way off, the father ran and embraced him and kissed him. He, he violates all social protocols. I don't run, personally, I don't run for two reasons. One is because I've never seen a runner who looks like they're enjoying it. And, and two, I'm, I'm not in shape. So those are the two reasons why I don't run. And, but in the ancient Near East, um, men my age, and I suppose that this man was probably around my age, he, they didn't run because it was socially unacceptable. They were, they were men of dignity, and to run was an undignified thing. And this father, out of such incredible love for his son, this abiding love, abandons all social protocols and runs down the road to greet his son. watching and waiting and longing for him to return and never losing hope. He doesn't even wait. The son's all loaded up with his, his confession. Dad, I've sinned against you. I sinned against heaven. I sinned against God. I'm not worthy to be yours. He's got it all loaded up. And in the middle of his confession, dad interrupts him and turns to the servants. Get a robe. Get shoes for his feet. Put a ring on his finger. Start the party. My son is home. He was dead. He's alive. He was lost, and he's found. The son didn't even get to finish his speech, and he was lovingly welcomed home by his father. He had no doubt prayed earnestly for his son, had planned this reception in his mind. This isn't a spontaneous reaction. He knew exactly what he was going to do when he saw his son coming down that road. He had planned to reach out in this way right from the beginning. So do you see it? Each one of these parables showing how the lead character reached out to the not yet found, the not yet saved. And Jesus' point here is simply, if a shepherd does that for his sheep, if a woman does it for a silver coin, if a dad does it for just a son who, who spit in his face and really wanted him dead, then how much more would God the Father do that for his wayward children? For those who are lost spiritually and alienated from him, needing to be found, needing to be saved. If you want to know God's heart, this is it. In the most familiar of scripture passages, we hear that God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son for the not yet saved. That's his heart. Do you have that heart? You might uh, quickly say, of course I do. I'm a Christ follower. I want to see people come to faith in Christ. But the reality is that we put all kinds of obstacles in the way of this actually happening. Let me give you six. One obstacle we put in the way of reaching the lost is softening the gospel to make it easier for people to accept. 
We, we don't like the hard edge of it. We don't like that it's Jesus only. And so we soften it. We change the gospel. We modify it to the situation to make it easier for people because we don't want to offend them. And in this culture today with this high value of not offending anyone, we don't want to offend people. And the gospel is inherently offensive. The gospel is a, and Jesus Christ is a rock of offense and a stone of stumbling and Yet we want to soften it and round the edges and sugarcoat it, and that's not helpful. It's an obstacle in the way of actually reaching the lost. Uh, Secondly, an inconsistent life. We talk about being a Christian, but it's hard to tell based on our life choices. Uh, This is hypocrisy or being two-faced. Or third, we're so inwardly focused By this I mean we're always at church, we're always doing church, we have no time for others. I've seen this, I've lived this. I hope that it's not a problem here. We put in a determined effort to follow an approach to ministry called Simple Church. We would never consider it um, successful if on our master calendar as a church every night of the week we're filled up. That would be a failure for us. We, we don't intend at 7 George Street to have the lights on every night of the week. We wouldn't consider that a, a positive or a win. Uh, we want to give you lots of time with your family. We want lots of open spaces in your week. We want you to have time for your neighbors and friends and coworkers who don't know Jesus. And filling up your calendar with churchy stuff is not going to get that done. And so... Um, Inward focus can be an obstacle. Secondly, boldness, no boldness, never actually doing anything to invite someone to consider church. See, we we print the invitations, we hand out the invitations, but the invitations are useless unless the invitations are then distributed to people who don't come here. See, and all it takes, all it takes is a little boldness. That's it. And, And many of us just don't have that. That's an obstacle. Fifth, no compassion. A failing to meet obvious needs when they're put right in front of you. And we've talked in this series already that the gospel is two things. It is personal reconciliation with God, and then it is me moving with compassion to meet the needs, moving toward people who have needs uh, in compassion to to help uh, those on the margins, those who are vulnerable, those who are weak. The gospel is both of those things, not one or the other thing, but both. And when we only have the personal reconciliation with God, but we're never very compassionate and loving, uh, why would anyone ever believe that gospel? Six, uh, fighting the wrong battles is a big one. Fighting the wrong battles, arguing moral issues and seeking to convert the culture rather than leading individuals to a personal faith in Jesus Christ. We're fighting the wrong battle when we're fighting the culture. And then um, you can see all of those, but I have a bonus one that I want to give you to um, another obstacle to reaching the loss, <laughs> being an idiot on social media. I don't need to say anything more about that, but... Okay, that said, how about, how about this? Uh, seven, seven ways to be effective in reaching the lost. Ready for these? Uh, first of all, like, like the dad in the parable, watch, watch for them. Look for the hurting, look for the lost, look for the people who have come uh, to the end of themselves, who are at the end of their rope, who've had the uh, rock dropped on their life. Look for those people around you and seek to serve them and minister to them and love them in Jesus' name. Uh, Secondly, um, share your story. 
People may argue the word of God. They may argue um, uh, the gospel. They may argue Jesus. They're not going to be able to argue your story of transformation. They can't. It's your story. Share your story. A third, extend an invitation. Uh, This uh, plays off on the lack of boldness one, obviously, and just take those invitations and hand them out and, 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 and ask God for boldness to do that. This past week, the five pastors, we were out for lunch, and um, uh, the server was coming around to, to have us pay our bills, and I gave her one of the Easter uh, invitations, and I said to her, you know, we're all, we're all pastors uh, from, uh, from a church in town. And she went, really? And I didn't know if that was a compliment or not. <laughs> I'm still working on processing that, but... But listen, it doesn't take very much at all to invite someone uh, to be here for Easter services. And um, uh, God help us to uh, seize upon those opportunities. Four, uh, live the gospel. Live it individually in terms of personal holiness and personal compassion. But then I wrote this down. Let's live it out corporately, continuing to create uncommon community here in our Harvest family. Because the environment in which the not yet saved will see the gospel is right here. One of my favorite verses from John's gospel is John 13, 35. By this will all people know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And what we're creating here, the awesomeness of this family, that's attractive to people who don't have Jesus. They wonder about it. Really, do you do that for each other? And why would you do that for each other? And look how you care for one another. That's attractive. And then uh, number five, um, pray, obviously. And, and pray specifically for opportunities when you wake up in the morning. God, would you give me an opportunity today to tell someone about you? Put somebody in my path who needs Jesus. Number six, remain hopeful. Like the dad in the parable, he didn't lose heart. God can save anyone. And some of you have lost hope for, for the prodigals in your life. You've lost hope. And don't ever lose hope. God... God can save anyone, amen? God can save anyone. And then seven, I I just wrote down, no, this is pretty obvious, know how to explain the gospel. And um, I could tell you lots of techniques right now, but um, time doesn't permit that. But I would say if you go onto our website and right at the bottom of the very first page of our website, you'll see a little link, I would like to know God, and you can click there and you'll see the outline of the five gospel words, just one of the ways that we've taught here to explain the gospel to someone. Just review that and know that and use that link as you explain the gospel uh, to others. All right, and if that happens, okay, if we're, if we're reaching out, then, then look what happens next. You and I will rejoice, we will rejoice when someone is found by him, amen? We'll rejoice when someone is found by him, when someone's saved. And you know these parables, since we're into renaming the parables, you want to get another name for them? Another name for these parables? Okay. We could also call them the story of the three parties. Okay. This is the story of the three parties. Because each one of them ends with a celebration in the words of the dad in verses 23 and 24. Let's eat and celebrate, for my son was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. The shepherd and the woman both, verses six and nine, we see they called together their friends and their neighbors, saying, rejoice with me, for I've found the sheep, I found the coin that I had lost. 
And while the believers are celebrating the finding of those who are lost, those who are found are enjoying their first few moments of being a follower of Jesus Christ or son and daughter of the king. Their first steps with Jesus. And whenever we get together on weekends like this, I'm I'm not unaware that there are some here, many here who already know Jesus, who are secure in him, and there's usually some here who have not yet made a commitment to Jesus Christ. That in a room filled with people who are no longer lost, there are some here who are still lost. And we would love to rejoice at the end of this day in some, many, one, giving their life to Christ. The younger son, if that's you, if you're the lost one, you are the younger son in this story. He tried to fill his life with wine, women, and song, and he came up empty. It satisfied nothing. And if you're here and you're lost, whatever you're chasing in this world, education, a relationship, wealth, status, pleasure, whatever you're chasing, it's going to lead down a dead-end road. It will come up empty for you every time. It will satisfy nothing if it's not Jesus. The famous mathematician and philosopher Blaise Pascal said it this way, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man which cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by God, the creator made known through Jesus. If you sense that you have that God-shaped vacuum in your own life inside of you, if you are lost and without Jesus Christ, then You only need to hear the story of this younger son to match it with your own. He said to his father, verse 12, give me the share of property that's coming to me. The text tells us rather matter-of-factly that his dad divided the property between them, but not without some pain. The son is saying, in essence, dad, I'm rejecting your way of life and your home and your rules and the way you do everything. I'm rejecting all of that, dad. And I'm going to go my own way. And by the way, I'm rejecting it so completely, I want my share of the inheritance, which is in effect saying, I wish you were dead. How does a dad receive that from his son? In brokenness, no doubt. It went badly for this son rather quickly. Verses 13 through 16, not many days later, he goes off on his way, but he squandered, see this phrase, he squandered his property in reckless living. That, by the way, is the definition of a prodigal. Someone who squanders what they have in reckless living. He spent everything, Jesus said. A severe famine then hit the land. Uh, He began to be in need. He hired himself out to feed pigs. He was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. No one gave him anything. so, So this boy, this man is now sunk to the lowest of the low. You have to understand, Jews don't do pigs. So this is the lowest of the low for a good Jewish boy. And that's 
merely symbolic of where each of us needs to get if we're going to come to Jesus Christ. We need to get low. Jesus said this in the Sermon on the Plain. Um, this is uh, Luke six twenty. Blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. It's not economic poverty that he's speaking of here, but poverty of spirit, as he said in the Sermon on the Mount. It is coming to the end of yourself. It is uh, pride crushed in my life. And then being saved by God. Then getting the kingdom of God. And that's what you should really want. In fact, in the pursuit of everything else, that's actually what you're going after, is to have that emptiness filled. An emptiness that only God can fill. And people have different points at which they come to the end of themselves. Some people actually have to hit rock bottom and have everything taken away from them before they'll see Jesus. And some, I don't know if it's smarter or what, but some of them on the way down or before they even start the descent can see the emptiness and the futility of it and turn their life over to Jesus. You don't have to come to the very bottom. You can at least see that that's where you're going and turn your life over to Christ. Figure it out before it gets as desperate as it got for this young man. But the reality is at any point along the way, there is a point of crisis at which we realize that life in the manner in which we're living it is not satisfying. And for the lost son, verse 17, this is such a great phrase where it says that he came to himself. Now mark it in your Bibles, this is the point of his conversion. This is where he gets saved. This is the point at which he comes to himself, meaning he now agrees with his father. And he literally turns from his way of doing it to go back to his father. He agrees and he turns. And he figured it out in his mind. How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? I'm, I'm perishing here with hunger. I'm trying to do it on my own. I'm failing. And then he says all the right things in verses 18 and 19. I'm going to go to my father. I'm going to say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Just receive me back as one of your hired servants. He agreed with his father and he turned back. That's what we see here in all of his words and all of his actions. It's genuine repentance and he puts a period at the end of the sentence in verse 20 and he arose and he came to his father. He had played it through in his mind. It con he convinced himself in his will and he act upon it, acted upon it physically. That's repentance. And if you're lost here today, that's what you need to do. If you have the God-shaped vacuum, you need to have that filled by Jesus today. And then, and then, we get to party here and the angels will party in heaven over one sinner who repents. Well, a final uh, matter that we need uh, to deal with here, if you have the heart of God for the lost, you'll also need to reject any sense of entitlement that you might have as one of his current children. 
In the first parable, Jesus refers in verse 7 to the 99 righteous persons who have no need of repentance. Now, first of all, everyone needs repentance, amen? Everyone needs repentance. Um, But by referring to righteous persons here, Jesus is identifying those who are already secure in him. So he's meaning it in a sense, in a very positive way. Those of you who are believers, professing believers, you're righteous in the sense that you've already made some kind of commitment to be a worshiper of God. But sadly, some among them had actually gotten to the place where they actually thought they didn't need to repent the scribes and the Pharisees. And so there is some irony here when he talks about those who need no repentance. And Jesus actually tells these stories to the scribes and Pharisees and verse two, because they were grumbling because Jesus, verse one, is actually reaching tax collectors and sinners, those who the Pharisees considered to be tax collectors and sinners. They're all drawing near to hear him. The religious leaders had developed, in fact, this sense of entitlement as the children of God and as God's leaders. And they were like the older son who was then pleading his case and was upset about all the fuss that was being shown to his younger brother. Verse 28, he was angry. He refused to go into the party. So dad comes, verse 29. Actually, before dad responds to him, the son says this, verse 29. Look, these many years I've served you. I've never disobeyed your command. You've never given me a young goat or any opportunity to party with my friends. But then, notice what he says here. When this son of yours came, not my brother. There's no tenderness, no endearment here. When this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes. You threw a party for him. One commentator said this, of these two sons, one was prodigal in heart and body, and one was prodigal only in heart. One, for one, the culpability or guilt was obvious for the other less obvious because he gave the appearance of being faithful and true and he was present and outwardly compliant. But don't miss this. The older son is just as lost as the younger. And the father's heart is no less for him. That's why Jesus is telling these stories to these Pharisees and scribes. He's hoping they're gonna get it. He's hoping they're going to see him. And indeed, some of the Pharisees did. And they followed him and believed. Notice, verse 28, the father came out to the older son and entreated him and pleaded with him to celebrate that his brother was lost and is now found. God's love, his heart coming through for all his people, for both his sons. The lesson for us should be fairly clear, we should never be satisfied with the size of our church. Now, now we, we don't talk about numbers very much here. You probably wouldn't even know really how many people come here on a weekend because you just never talk about those things. The attendance in that respect is not super important to us. Once in a while, we report it to a members meeting and that's about it. Because the numbers themselves are a matter for boasting 
But that said, we're always striving to continue to grow, to lead more people to Jesus, and this is the value we embrace. We're never satisfied with the size of our church or with the number of churches planted. We're never satisfied with the number of people who profess faith in Jesus Christ or who are baptized. Never satisfied with those numbers, always striving and desiring that more people who are lost would be found, amen? To rest comfortably as a church is simply unbiblical. It's what the older son did. And I will say this, many churches, as we make our way to 7 George Street, many churches make an idol of the buildings that they own. And we will not do that. Our new building is going to be beautiful inside. It's going to be all shiny and new and complete. But it cannot be something that we're so protective of that we shoo people away by our desire to protect it. 7 George Street is meant to be used for the glory of God in fulfilling his purpose in this world to seek and save the lost. Let me say it again. 7 George Street is meant to be used for the glory of God in fulfilling his purpose in this world to seek and save the lost, not to keep and preserve the found. A sense of entitlement doesn't fit our mission. A life of ease is not consistent with the three W's. Comfort is not one of the four pillars. We're to be grateful for the security he provides us as the followers of Jesus Christ, as his sons and daughters, but no sense of entitlement. Instead, we are to be standing, watching with the Father. We are to be seeking, sweeping the house, lighting a lamp, watching, waiting, reaching out, eager to welcome home those who are lost and celebrate these lost sons and daughters who come to him. Amen? Thanks so much for listening. We always love hearing about the work God's doing in our listeners. If God's been doing a work in you, send us an email at info at And remember, you are loved.